Romans 13, 8 through 14. It's the Apostle Paul writing. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. And you guys may be seated. Many of you guys are familiar with the Narnia stories that were written by C.S. Lewis uh, back in, I guess, the 1950s is when he started writing those. Uh, The most famous of those stories is the first one that he wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the story... Uh, there are four children uh, who go into a wardrobe or like a kind of a closet and are transported to this magical world called Narnia. And, and while initially, while this world initially seems like this beautiful, magical, kind of fascinating place with talking animals and mythical creatures, it quickly becomes clear to these kids that things are actually not good in the land of Narnia. Narnia is, at this point in time, ruled by a white witch. And one of the brothers, Edmund, uh, is tempted by the white witch and is ultimately tempted into serving her. And then he, like, becomes her prisoner. The other children, however, hear of a prophecy. They hear that there is a rightful king um, named Aslan, And the rightful king has been away for some time, but there's a prophecy that the rightful king will one day return and will like reestablish his throne. And in the process, there are going to be what the book calls sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, who also are crowned kings and queens within Narnia. So Aslan, who is a lion, uh, returns and he mounts this rescue party to go and save Edmund from the white witch. And, and, Unbeknownst to the children, Aslan essentially gives his life so that Edmund can be saved. He sacrifices himself and the witch kills him. However, the morning after Aslan is killed, he's restored to life. Sound familiar? And the armies of Narnia, led by Aslan, destroy the witch and destroy her evil kingdom. And then the story ends with the children being crowned kings and queens of Narnia, where they reigned for years before being returned to their own world. And so if you know anything about that story, if you know anything about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that C.S. Lewis did not come up with this kind of overarching narrative by himself, right? He's he's grabbing this from somewhere else, and and the somewhere else is the pages of Scripture. This overarching storyline was not his original creation. Instead, the story is what we know as an allegory. 
It's an allegory. It's, it's a story where the characters and the events and the circumstances represent something else. And I grew up thinking that the primary allegorical element within the story of Aslan and the children was that Aslan represented Jesus and that Jesus always saves the day. Like that that was the primary point that C.S. Lewis was trying to make. However, there's actually far more to the allegory that's found in that story. In fact, Lewis was following this ancient pattern that we see in the scriptures and that has been talked about for years and years and years. Um, And this pattern is sometimes called CFRR, CFRR, which means creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And this is what could be called the meta-narrative of the Bible, kind of like the overarching storyline of the Bible, that God created everything in perfection, that God created not only like the oceans and the sky, but God created mankind. He created all the animals and all of this was good. But then, as we know, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they stepped out of God's will. They did what he told them not to do. And they, in a sense, ruined everything and brought this curse upon the world that God had created. So creation, fall. But there is coming one, and this is prophesied throughout the Old Testament, there's coming one that's going to restore all things to the way that they should be. And we find this in the person of Christ. And what Jesus is doing is not just the cross. The cross is really the initial restorative action. Jesus will also return, won't he? He will return, and what Scripture tells us is that he will make all things New. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So with all of that in mind, there is actually a a critical movement. If those four things are like four movements within scripture, there's actually like a critical movement that's left out of that four part narrative. And that is the movement of renewal. We see this in scripture as well as in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The very last chapter within this book, and I actually brought the book with me. The very last chapter in this book, the children have uh, been crowned kings and queens in Narnia. Uh, The white witch has been vanquished. Um, They now kind of like reign and rule as ambassadors of Aslan in the land of Narnia. And what it says in the very last chapter is these two kings and two queens governed Narnia well and long and happy was their reign. At first, much of their time was spent in seeking out the remnants of the white witch's army and destroying them. And indeed, for a long time, there would be news of evil things lurking in the wilder parts of the forest, a haunting there, a killing there, a glimpse of a werewolf one month and a rumor of a hag the next. But in the end, all that foul brood was stamped out. And they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. So this is just this little paragraph in the final chapter. And what's interesting to me is that C.S. Lewis does this intentionally. Because he knows the true overarching narrative of Scripture. So he's going, even though the white witch has been vanquished, it doesn't mean that evil is now just like completely gone from the land. So he says there's still the remnants of her army and there's still like talk of a killing over here and bad things happening over here. And what the kings and queens are doing 
is they are working out this like gradual process of restoration. There has been this initial act of redemption, but then there is this like progressive restoration that is going on in the land until it says, until everything was stamped out completely, right? So there's this process of renewal that's taking place. It's taking place not only in that story, it's taking place in scripture, it's taking place in our lives as well. And for several weeks now, we've been talking about what the scripture calls the ministry of reconciliation. And, and so based on what we've just talked about, see if this sounds familiar to you. Jesus has given his life for ours, and in doing so, we have been offered the opportunity to become sons and daughters of the king, and we have been given the task of being ambassadors of his kingdom in this world. Our specific task as ambassadors is to call those around us to also be reconciled to Christ in the way that we have been reconciled to Christ. But our question is, how have you been reconciled to Christ? What, what does it look like in your life when you say that you've been reconciled to Christ? Are, are you simply talking about like this eternal spiritual thing when you talk about your reconciliation to him or the fact that he saved you? Like, what is it that you mean? Are you talking about one day later on I'm not going to go to hell and instead I'm going to go to heaven. And that's what I'm talking about. Or are you talking about that and more? Like, is he also not just doing something for later down the road, but is he also doing something now in your life? Is he moving in some way in your life in the day to day? How have you been reconciled? In what ways have you been reconciled in? Because what the Bible teaches is that it isn't just your eternity that has changed. Your here and now has changed as well and is changing and will change. And here's the truth, though. For many of us, our lives don't look markedly different from our lost friends and family around us. For, for many people in the church, who call themselves Christians, who go to church regularly, many of us, our lives don't genuinely look all of that different than a lot of the lost people that are around us in our lives. What do I mean? Many of our lost friends and family are also good people, like who are trying to do the right thing most of the time or trying to do the moral thing most of the time. Many of our lost friends and family, just like us, some, through, some of them go through rough seasons or they make bad decisions sometimes. Some of them are optimistic people or hopeful people or happy people. Like many of the same things that we value in the life of a Christ follower, we can also find in the lives of people who don't know Jesus, right? So, so what is the difference there? Like, what's the difference between the reconciliation you've experienced and your lost neighbor who's also hopeful and happy and fulfilled and excited about their gifts and talents and using them and feeling like, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not as if everybody else is living this wretched life and yet you've discovered this incredible life, right? And there's this great contrast. Often there's very little contrast. So what makes our lives different? What makes our lives markedly different from the people around us who don't know Christ? And if your life in Christ doesn't look on the surface all that different from the life of someone who doesn't know him, why would anybody want what you have, right? So how did we get here where often there is very little distinction 
So I'm convinced that rather than a four-movement story in my life, I was taught like a two-movement story, maybe a three-movement story, um, in that I was primarily taught as a kid that there was a fall and there was a redemption. And that was, that was pretty much it, that we're all sinful, that we're all evil, that we all can't save ourselves. And so, thankfully, there's a Savior named Jesus who came and died so that we might have life, so that we might be restored to Jesus. Maybe there was that element of creation in there, that originally God made everything to be perfect. Originally God made everything good, and, and we messed that up. But thankfully there is a Savior that's coming. But, but I can tell you that for me growing up, there was no restoration. Like our primary hope was what Jesus did on the cross. It didn't also include the fact that Jesus was coming back. If anything, the fact that Jesus was coming back was used uh, in a fear-based kind of way, right? That you better believe in what he did on the cross so that when he comes back, you're going to be okay. Uh, So I don't know if y'all experienced something like that, but that's what I experienced in my life. This either two or three part story. So yes, Jesus comes as our redeemer. But then instead of the story being over, There is this next phase. Jesus restores us to our original state. That final fourth phase. Jesus makes all things new, including us. But in between those two things, in between what he's done on the cross and the fact that he will come again and finalize all of this and make all things new, in between those two things is this renewal phase. And to use the big theological word, it's, it's sanctification. That there is this phase where he is making us more like him, where he is growing us up, where he is maturing us into his likeness, where we are being renewed by him. To quote Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, here's what he says. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so spoke We also believe, so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, meaning like this life, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the pattern should really be creation, fall, redemption, renewal, restoration. And why does this matter? Like, why is this important? It matters because God does not change. God does not change. And in his unchanging nature, we find that he actually wants the same thing from us that he wanted from Israel back in the day. He wants the same thing from us that he wanted from Israel back in the day. Our text from Leviticus that Lindsay read for us earlier in the service throughout this key phrase that we hear over and over and over again in the first five books of the Bible. And it's this phrase, be holy 
for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And that word holy primarily just means set apart. Be set apart in the way that I am set apart. Another way that you could think about this is that it's God saying, be who I made you to be. Like in that very beginning, in that creation phase where God looked at it and said, everything is good. God is calling us to return to that, like to pursue that place where everything was right, where we were obedient, where we were the men and women that he had created us to be. Be who I made you to be. So this is said over and over and over again in the Torah. And then we come to the New Testament and Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 1. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So when he returns, be like set your hope on that. Like not just on what happened in the past on the cross, but set your hope on the fact that he is coming and that there is going to be grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So go back to Deuteronomy, go back to Exodus, fast forward to the book of 1 Peter. God still wants the same thing, right? That hasn't changed. He still wants us to be set apart. He still wants us to be who he made us to be, to be like growing up and developing into what he created us for. So in Narnia, even after the witch is gone, there's still all this evil in the land, right? Even, even though Jesus has died for our sin, even though, to use the, the big word, even though we've been justified by him, meaning we've been now made right before God because of what Christ has done on the cross. Like our sins have been paid for. We've been forgiven because what Christ has done on the cross. But yet we still sin, don't we? Right? We were watching the news the other night and like it's just nothing but bad, like, like horrible news. Like not just bad news, like terrible stuff, like all over. And I just go, man, we live in this weird world today where so many people would say, you know, I just I, I feel like everybody's like inherently good. Right. We live in this world where we feel like that's the way people are. And then you turn on the news and you go like, how in the world could you ever believe that? Like, how in the world could you ever think everybody's just basically good when you see all of just the brokenness of our world? And so even in Narnia, like, there's still things to be exorcised from the land. There's still things to be removed from the land. According to Paul and Peter, based on what we just read, what should make us different? What should make us different? It isn't only that we've been saved by Christ. It is also that because of his redemptive work, we now have this ultimate hope that we will be fully restored, right? Not just that we will be forgiven, not just that we will go to heaven one day, but that we will be fully restored, that God will make us into the people he originally created us to be. And what we just read was that should be the thing that we are longing for. Like that is the thing that we should be excited about to the point where like we literally don't care that we are decaying and disintegrating, like that we are dying and that the world around us is broken and decaying 
and disintegrating around us. That our hope is so firmly fixed on Christ and not only what he has done, but what he will do. That we kind of look around and we go, it's okay, right? Because of Jesus. So the result of that should be, like, what are we worried about? Like, what are we anxious about? Just think of all the ways that this connects to the teaching of Jesus, right? God knows what you need. God knows how to take care of you. God knows that you need food and clothing and money and shelter and all of these things. Like, why are you worried? Well, I look at the world around me and I see all of this brokenness and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think God doesn't know that? Do you think that God doesn't see what you need? So where is your hope? Because if the response is worry and fear and anxiety, then the answer probably is my hope's actually in this world or my hope's actually in mankind or other people, right? So if you get wrapped up in political figures who are going to come save the day for everybody and that that actually brings you a sense of peace, where, like where is your hope? Is it in Christ or is it in man? Is it in Christ or is it in this world? Because what Paul's saying is, man, I, like, I, I now count all of this as rubbish. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So we don't worry about the physical degeneration of ourselves and of our world. And the other response that we should have is that we intentionally seek who he created us to be that we seek to grow up into him, that we seek to mature in him, that that is a focus of our life because our hope is on the fact that he is coming and that he will restore all things. Now, you may say, well, I can't. I can't just make myself the person he created me to be, right? Like, you're not saying I can just do that stuff. Well, no, you can't do it on your own, but through Christ, we've been given a helper, the Holy Spirit, who he has sent to us, who wants to work within us to lead us towards renewal. So that, as Paul said, so that the inner man is being developed, even as the outer shell is wasting away. Um, A a great example of of this is actually happening in my house right now with pregnancy. Like pregnancy is this thing where there, there are certainly like some outer signs of what's going on, but most of what's happening is internal. And it's invisible, right? Like, like this baby is developing and like Lindsay's body is preparing to have a baby. And, and so there's all of this internal work that's going on and a little bit of outward sign, but most of it is inside. Paul's saying the same thing should be going on within us spiritually. Like there is this internal work that is happening and yes, it, it like comes out like there, there are signs that something's going on. There's signs that something's going on here. There are signs that things are changing. Other people can see it, but they, they really don't see the fullness of it. And there will come a point in time where Lindsay will give birth. And in the same way, there will come a point in time where Jesus will return and will bring all of this to its fruition. And what Paul says is we're being prepared for that point, right? There is this internal work that's going on that is preparing us for the fact that he is going to come and restore all things and make all things new. God wants to facilitate significant change inside of you. But what he doesn't say is sit back and relax and let me work my magic. Does he? 
He hasn't called you to be passive with the notion that he's just going to do it all. No, he calls you to like active participation in this work, which brings us to our main text, which is what I'm actually going to close with. Romans 13, 8 through 14. Five cues that Paul throws out here in Romans, five cues that we find in this text for engaging the work of renewal that God is seeking to do within us. Five ways that we pursue growing up into Christ. First, Paul says love is the primary law. Love is the primary law. This isn't some like hippy-dippy thing. This isn't like flower power Jesus. What Paul says, and he's just repeating Jesus here, is that God wants you to follow the law just like he wanted ancient Israel to follow the law. And by the law, what he's talking about here is what could be called the moral law. Like he, he starts to outline the Ten Commandments there. The Ten Commandments are representative of the moral law of Israel. And he says, here's how you sum up the moral law. Love your neighbor. All of it. Like put it into one basket. Love your neighbor. This is what's often known as the great commandment of Jesus. Um, or in Judaism, it's known as the Shema. That you would love God by loving your neighbor. This is what it means for you to be holy and set apart in the way that God is holy. God loves himself. Does he not? God loves himself. He's a jealous God. He requires obedience. He, he can't be around things that are not holy. Right? He is primarily concerned that we regard him as the one true God, that we worship him as the one true God. He's primarily concerned with his own glory. Yet this same God, this same God that is all of those things, this same God sacrificed his only son so that we might be reconciled to him. The same God who is jealous that he be thought of as the one true God and worshiped and loved is the same God that gave everything for us in this incredibly selfless act. So there's this, this paradox of sorts. It's hard for us to understand this because we're humans. But God is completely concerned with himself. Like in, in, in some ways, you could say God is self-consumed. And yet there's no sin there, right? And, and yet at the same time, there is like perfect selflessness there. Like that, that just kind of makes my brain explode. I don't understand how that works. And yet that is who he is. So the same God who's jealous that he be worshiped and that he be thought of as the one true God, the same God has given everything for us. And, and what he most wants from us is for us to love him by loving other people in the way that he loves us. That is how we worship him. Like that is how we give him praise and honor. That is how we like celebrate the fact that he is God and we are not. We love other people in the way that he's loved us. Secondly, Paul says we have to wake up. Some of us are asleep. Um, many people who are sitting in churches throughout our country, throughout our world are asleep. You have been lured into this like comatose state by the cares and the concerns of this world. Your hope 
possibly is in the cares and concerns of this world, not in what is to come in Christ and what has been accomplished in Christ. So you're worried about everything. And so Paul says, wake up to the fact that like the yoke or the burden of Jesus is light. Like wake up to the fact that he, he's not putting a cross on you in the way that it was on, that it was on him. That doesn't mean that there aren't hard things that will come. It doesn't mean it won't be challenging. But compared like, to what is to come, it's well worth it. Like the fact that he will come and make you who he created you to be. The fact that he will come and restore you. It makes the here and now worth it. So he says like, these, these afflictions are momentary. And yet we lose sight of that. We are to be a slave to him instead of a slave to the world. We are to pursue him instead of pursuing more or pursuing power or pursuing comfort or pursuing importance. Paul says those things are transient. Those things will go away. Next, as you wake up, cast off darkness. Cast off darkness. And he goes in this text into... Uh, drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. These are just like examples. Like this is not an exhaustive list, but he's saying you got to get rid of all this stuff. Um, to use the language of the New Testament, you've got to put sin to death in your life. You know your, your sin. Like the people around you may not know all of your sin or the depths of your depravity, but you do. And we're called to intentionally go to war against the things that afflict us. And here's one of the things that I think is true. If, if there is no victory in your life, in some way, shape, or form, if there is no victory in your life, if there is no moving past sin, if there's no, I'm a different person today than I was in the past, like if there is no sense of that, then I think you really have to examine yourself and go, man, where is my hope? And am I intentionally pursuing the things that Jesus has called me to pursue? And if there's no victory for you, why would anybody else want to place their hope in the thing that you say that you've placed your hope in? Next, put on light. This is metaphorical language, but throughout the scriptures, God's glory, God's nature, God's being is described as light or luminescence. And so even though this is symbolic language, Paul is ultimately calling us to take on like the nature of Christ, to, to emulate Jesus, to go, who is Jesus? How did he live? How did he make decisions? How did he interact with people? What did he do? What did he not do? And then pattern your life after him. And, and so the follower of Christ should, should be somebody who's learning Christ. That's, that's why the word disciple means learner. Right? If we're a follower of him, we should, if we're a disciple of him, we should be learning him like, and learning what he's like and learning what he's not like so that we might pattern our lives after him. This is what he means when he says put on Christ. Um, some translations say something like um, clothe yourself in Jesus, clothe yourself in Christ. So, so this is the symbolism that, that we would literally like put him on as a garment that, that he, would, he would so kind of like cover us that our outward, like what's projecting out of us would be reflective of who he is and what he's like. Does that make sense? To use other language that Paul uses or another metaphor that he uses, Paul says we, we put off the old man and we take on the new man. To use the words of Jesus, we are born again, right? All of these things are pointing at the same thing. 
And then finally, he says, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. And I think that there are a few different directions that you could go with this. But, but here's the one that I think is critical. Some of us have set up structures around us that make it easier for us to sin. Some of us have set up things around us in our lives or have become comfortable with things in our life that actually help us to sin or facilitate our sin. In other words, in some way, you have like built sin into your daily life. Like you've, um, you've given up maybe, like you've, or you've just decided this is who I am. Like, yeah, these are the things I do. This is just the way God made me to be. No, no, no. If you're justifying sin in your life by saying, this is the way that God made me to be, then you don't understand the overarching narrative of Scripture that we just went through. This is not how God made you to be. Like you have been fed a story that is smaller. It isn't complete. Like if you're not going back and going, no, no, no. In the beginning, God created all things and all things were good, including mankind. And ultimately, he is working to restore all things to their original intent. If you go, man, I'm just who God made me to be, you are wrong. You are not. That is why he gave his only son. Like it's an affront to what he has done for us in Christ. For you to say, no, I'm who he made me to be. No, you are not. Like he is calling us to be reconciled to him and to be changed by him and to become like Christ. Does that make sense? And, and yet we like just dismiss stuff and go, eh, that's just what I do. Stop it, <laughs> right? Like turn it over to Jesus. Like get rid of the darkness and put on light. Clothe yourself in Christ and make no provision for the flesh that would justify your sin or facilitate your sin or make it easier for you to sin. Don't surround yourself with people who validate your sin. It's not who you were created to be. It's not who Christ is recreating you to be. It is a light and momentary affliction that you are treating as an essential component of who you are. When the children entered Narnia, they had no clue about who they were, like who they were destined to be. They had no clue that there was a prophecy about sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who would reign as kings and queens but it was what they were created to be. And in the story, because of Aslan, they were able to fully realize who they were created to be. They were able to become who they were, who they were created to be. And it's not fiction. Like, this is the true story that we are living even now. Like, this is the true story that God is working out even now. And the good news is, is that you are not meant to do this alone. You're not meant to do this just by yourself. This isn't just something you pursue on your own. This is why the church exists, is to call people to be reconciled to Christ and to grow people up into Christ. And we do that together. Um, when we started this church, one of the big things that was essential to us, to me and Justin, incredibly important to us, was that we would have like a strategy for discipleship. And, and by strategy for discipleship, I don't mean that we would know like what Bible studies we're going to teach, but, but that we meant that we actually had a game plan for how, how, like how in the world are we going to go about growing people up into Christ? 
And rather than just like coming up with our own thing, what we said is well, what we need to do is we need to look at Jesus and go, how did he do that work? How did Jesus do that work? Well, he called people into community with him. And then he like intentionally, personally, relationally invested in these guys and taught them how to live. He didn't just teach them verbally. He taught them through how he lived his life. He taught them through action. Um, he taught them by like sending them out to like so, so that they could mess up and come back and like learn from their mistakes. I think we undervalue the role of failure in our lives and the way that God uses failure to shape us into the men and women he's called us to be. Because Jesus intentionally used failure as a part of his process. And so one of the things that we landed on that we have started doing with some of you guys is um, we have developed this system that we call coaching um, which is really just discipleship. It's personal, relational discipleship. It's going, hey, we want to invite you into a relationship with one of us. And, and we just want to walk together as you grow up into Christ. We, we want to process what's going on in your life. We want to help you work through things. We want to help you put sin to death. We want to help you figure out who Jesus is and how he lived and what he did and what he taught and all of those things so that you might pattern your life after him. And listen, if you don't have somebody walking with you and like pouring into you and investing in you in that, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to do that. And, and so as a result, we have all these people who, who've been in church their whole life and they may be 60, 70, 80 years old. They've never had somebody pull up alongside them and actually invest in them and pour into them and teach them how to be like Jesus. And, and yes, I, like I'm still putting sin to death in my life, right? So, so just like the kids in the story, I'm still having to go out and deal with this stuff that's lingering. And so are you. But we can do that together. And so I just want to close tonight by saying you guys are all invited into that kind of a relationship. Justin and I have bought, both gone through like a training process um, to equip us to do that kind of work. And we want to see not only people be coached and mentored or discipled, whatever you want to call it. Not only do we want to see those personal relationships, we want to see you engaging those personal relationships as well. Because that's the cycle that scripture lays out for us is that not only are you growing because of that kind of a relationship, but you also have been called to have that kind of a relationship with other people. That you are a disciple who makes disciples. Does that make sense? I'm going to close with that tonight. Let's go to God in prayer and thank him for his goodness and grace. Thank him for this work of reconciliation that he is doing and he's calling us to. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Father, um, just the beauty of your word tonight, the, be the, the beauty of the truths of scripture, I pray God that, um, I pray God that just through your word that you would communicate those truths into our heart, Father, that our eyes would be open, that we would wake up in the way that Paul describes, Father, that we would seek to put off darkness and take on light, to, to literally like seek to clothe ourselves in you, and that, Father, that we wouldn't try to do that in isolation or in a bubble, but that we would seek others, that we would allow others to invest in us and pour into us so that we might be grown up so that we can invest in others as well, Father, in the way that you've called us. Jesus, we thank you for that. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And tonight we pray in the way that you taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.